Amen. Good morning, beloved. How are you? If you have a Bible, open it to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1 is our passage this morning as we're working through this New Testament letter written by the Apostle Peter. We find ourselves in the last paragraph, verses 16 through 21. I think that we will likely be in this paragraph for at least one more week. In just a moment, I'm going to read it. And we're going to dig into it. I want to say a couple things as you're finding Second Peter. First, uh, I just want to reiterate, as Robert mentioned, that I'll be starting a Colossian study tonight here, born out of really just a desire during this time of distance and isolation, feeling like I need to spend more time with you, with my Bible opening, open, encouraging the people that, that God has given me and the other elders to shepherd. So I'll be right here. We'll distance out of three of you show up, we may move to my office, but we're going to, there's more of you, we'll space out here in the sanctuary. Again, there won't be any child care, and we will not be live streaming it, it's just going to be me with my Bible, and I'd love for you to come. It'll be a very informal time, and we're going to work through Colossians here in the fall. The second thing I want to say before we get into Second Peter is, I'm just glad you're here. Um, 2020's been a doozy, hadn't it? And the Lord is on our side. Just think about that for a minute, friends. Um, there are so many situations and circumstances going on just in this room. There are some of you that are just getting tossed to and fro by circumstances. Things that have really, you've brought on yourselves or that have been brought on you from the outside. Some of us are anxious and fearful. Others of us are frustrated and angry. I mean, there's just a full gamut of, of situations here in this room right now. But, but listen to me, beloved. All of our days were ordained before one of them came to be. The Lord is in control. He knows the end from the beginning. He's with us. He's with us. And here we are, Sunday morning, September 13th, with an opportunity to think deeply about God's word to his people and to lean forward together and to not think it's strange that these things are happening to us, but to rejoice insofar as we share in Christ's suffering. So praise God. Praise God. We live in an age of information, an age of so many inputs, many of them, as the phrase that we're all familiar with now, are fake or unreliable news. This has made us all, I think, to some degree or another, instinctively and maybe even subconsciously suspicious of authority, authority structures, and authority even in the Word of God. Can we trust what we are hearing? That's the issue at stake in our text this morning. Our text is relatively straightforward, but, and I know that I can exaggerate sometimes, I'm aware of that. You guys point that out to me. I'm, I'm guilty as charged. This paragraph is one of the central paragraphs in the New Testament for helping us develop an understanding, a doctrine of Scripture. It is a bedrock of the Bible. So let me read this text, and then we're going to work our way through it. Now in this text, I'm going to give you our outline up front, and then we'll work our way through it. In this text where Peter is describing his encounter that we read earlier, Robert read to us in Matthew chapter 17, the transfiguration, Peter's going to describe briefly that experience, that he saw as an eyewitness, and then he's going to transition into the authority of God's Word. So here's our outline. We're going, to look, we're, we're going to look at a sure experience and a more sure Word. A sure experience and a more sure Word. My goal is to really explain this text this Sunday, and then next Sunday we're going to dig deeper into the implications of this text for us as God's people. Verse 16, 2 Peter chapter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths 
when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, let's, let's pray. Lord, help us in this moment now as we have our Bibles open before us to understand your word. Nothing could be more critical or urgent or important that your people would feed on your word so that they would grow and that your spirit would make us more like Jesus so that we would be more prepared to be better lights in a dark place and equipped to bring glory to you and endure until that day. Nothing's more important than this. We pray this for all of our sister churches in Columbus. We pray that the pulpits would be burning with the word of God. We pray for churches that might not have a good understanding of the word of God, that are caught up in pragmatism and self-help and false gospels, that you would convict them and steer them into truth. I pray for myself, Lord. I, I humble myself and I know that I am a weak and frail man. I need your help to explain this text to the people that I care for. I carry my own burdens and weaknesses and frustrations and disappointments and a whole host of baggage into this morning, just like my friends and brothers and sisters here. So, Lord, we, we humble ourselves. We need you. This is not just tradition. This is the Lord's day when you are speaking to us by your spirit, through your word. Help us build up your church, Lord. Encourage us. Strengthen us. And for my friends in this room who don't know the Lord, Father, today, would today be the day of salvation for them? Would, they, would you pierce through the hardness of their heart and give them life? Would you give them the gift of faith that they can't produce on their own? And would you make their dead hearts alive? And would you save some in this room that do not yet know you? Do this all, Lord, I pray, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name. Amen. A sure experience, verses 16 through 18, is the first half of this text. Let's read about Peter's sure experience. Verse 16, he says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So the we there, I think clearly in context, is he's speaking about himself and the other apostles, which we'll talk about in just a moment, the importance of this word apostles and this office in the New Testament church. But he's saying we, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths, and, and really this is the theme undergirding all of Second Peter. When we get into second, uh, chapter 2, we're going to see that Peter is going to attack false prophets and false teachers that had risen up from amongst the church and were teaching false doctrine. One of the primary things that they were teaching was that Jesus was not coming back or that Jesus had already been risen in the hearts of the people and they were dragging people away from the clear teaching of the apostles which was based on the Old Testament which was pointing towards Christ. In fact, we see this in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. Peter is repeating the argument of his opponents and he says in verse 4, they will say, 2 Peter 3, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And so he's, in this letter, he's wanting to guard the church 
from this false teaching. And this is clearly still a problem today. False teaching has always abounded from the first century until now. So if we were dealing with false teaching just years after Christ's physical walking on the earth and the men who were specifically sent by Jesus to write the New Testament, if we're dealing with false teaching then, when there was the clarity of the apostolic witness, how much more are we dealing with false teaching today? Cleverly devised myths, false gospels, health and wealth preaching, which leads people to hell, pragmatism, which tends to, wants to bend the word of God into mere principles by which we can live a more functional, happier life. Those things are cleverly devised myths. Whether or not the person uh, preaching them is intentionally cleverly devising them or not, certainly there are principalities and powers that are using false preachers and teachers mostly unwittingly still in the first century and today to confuse God's people. And that's Peter's burden, and that should be our burden as we read this letter. And Peter's purpose here is to encourage believers. Know this. This is the purpose of this paragraph. He's wanting to encourage. He's wanting to fortify. He's wanting to strengthen the church's trust and confidence in the Word of God. That this is a sure and steady anchor for the people of God. And he says that we, and now here he's speaking of this experience in the first few verses. He's speaking of this experience that he had when he and James and John, as we read about in Matthew 17, experienced Jesus's transfiguration. So this is before Jesus's uh, sacrifice on the cross, before his resurrection, and Jesus transfigures himself before these three disciples. And he's saying, we were eyewitnesses of this. He's speaking about all of the apostles. Specifically, Peter, James, and John. But when he talks about we as being eyewitnesses of his majesty, I think included in that is all of the apostles. And what is the importance of us understanding the authority of these specific men? In the New Testament, this is very important. I said it a couple weeks ago, and I mention it occasionally, every time there's opportunity to, and I think it bears repeating often, because the, the, there is such confusion even in the church today about what where authority rests and what this office of apostle is. In the New Testament, we see this word apostle, which is a Greek word that literally just means sent ones, used in several ways. Sometimes it's used just in the context of somebody being sent out by a church or a group of people with a message to go encourage another group of Christians. So in that sense, many Christians have a kind of apostolic ministry where they're just sent with a word to go strengthen another group of Christians. But in this context, when the apostles, Peter and Paul and James and John and the others, use it or they refer to themselves, they are speaking about a specific office and role within the church. And the apostles, think of it this way, the apostles, capital A, is a role, a function, a group of men that were a one-time group of men in the church. They were 12 men, the 12 disciples that became the 12 apostles. Judas fell out at the, at the end. Jesus knew that from the beginning. And then he was replaced by Matthias. And then Paul becomes an apostle as Jesus comes back down from heaven and appears to Paul in Acts chapter 9. And these apostles were men who were eyewitnesses closest to Jesus during his earthly ministry and had a witness of the resurrection of Jesus, so including Paul, because he, although he was not with the resurrected Jesus during his earthly ministry, Jesus appeared to him in Acts chapter 9 and commissioned him as an apostle. These apostles had a specific one-time authority through which God would bring the New Testament. They were to teach the Old Testament and apply it to Christ's life and ministry, and they became the ones through whom all of the 27 letters of the New Testament that we now know of as the New Testament came through. They either wrote it or it came through their hand, through their authority, through their ministry associates. So there's an authority that Peter is claiming here. So just as a side, if anybody today 
is calling themselves an apostle, they are sorely and dangerously mistaken. I think sometimes this is just used in ignorance because a lot of people don't really understand this word and it's just kind of part of church culture. But that's a, sign, that's a warning sign right there. So don't go to a church. Don't listen to people on YouTube. Don't listen to people on TV who call themselves apostle. All of the apostles, all of the real apostles are dead. The only apostles you should be listening to is the letters of the apostles, which is the New Testament. And Peter here is saying that we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So let's look again at verses 17 and 18. He says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son. This is the Father speaking over the Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice from born, this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And so Peter is saying that he's, he's really wanting to bolster his authority against these false teachers because he's saying that he, along with James and John, and then also the other apostles, had a witness of Christ's authority. And so therefore, what Peter says can be trusted because he is especially sent by Jesus. That's Peter's point here. He's really defending himself against the attacks of these false teachers. So I know we read it, but let's just read it again. Let's just look again at Matthew chapter 17 and think about what this text is saying. Let me read verse 1, Matthew 17, this experience that Peter is referring to here in our text in 2 Peter. Let's look at it again in Matthew 17 quickly. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, changed transfigured and his face imagine just put yourself in this scene his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light and behold there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him so so Moses and Elijah are in heaven they appear with Jesus here in verse 3 and Peter said to Jesus I love this Peter just I mean this is just an interesting reaction to this Lord it is good that we are here. That's, yeah, Peter, that, that's right. It is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. An old preacher that I love to listen to commented on this verse, and he said that he loves Peter. This is a pastor that has pastored for many, many years, and he says, I love Peter here because Peter didn't bother with any church committees. He just started the building program right there. Let's get to it. <laughs> verse 5 he was still speaking when behold a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased listen to him and so when you're reading the new testament one thing that i want you to have an instinct for is just look for echoes clues threads that point to the doctrine of our triune god and this is one of them here we have the divine father speaking over the divine son not just merely a man but he's a man who is the god man who's appearing with the glory of the lord and so we have god the father speaking over god the son friends this has all sorts of implications you need more than just a good man to secure your redemption you need more than just a noble man to die for you on the cross you need god himself to absorb the wrath of god himself and christ is god and when the disciples, verse 6, heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So we've read this passage twice in this service. Why the importance of this passage? What's going on here? Peter is using this. And wouldn't this be? This is decades after this experience. This, this is maybe the most transformative experience in Peter's life save seeing the resurrected Jesus. And he's going back to this moment decades before and he's saying, based on this, what I have to say has an authority over and against the false teachers. And why, if you're wondering, why would Moses and Elijah show up in this transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain? What do Moses and Elijah signify? Moses and Elijah are Old Testament 
figures, obviously real men, who became symbols for Jewish thought of the law. It's Moses, the giver of the law. And Elijah, the symbol of the prophets. And so the Old Testament is often really summarized by just talking about the law and the prophets. So with, Mo- with Moses and Elijah there on the mountain, what's, what's embedded in their presence there? Essentially, God is saying... He's helping his people interpret the Bible. And he's saying this Old Testament, it's not just a mere collection of stories with principles to help you live a better life. This whole Old Testament is pointing. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, are all pointing to Jesus to whom the prophetic word is ultimately about. Jesus, in fact, says that very thing after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus. He comes across these two disciples who were discouraged, and they hadn't quite yet pieced things together yet, and they thought that they were just going to go on with their life after the one that they had followed was now crucified, and they did not know that he was risen. In verse 25 of Luke chapter 24, listen to how Jesus interprets the Old Testament. He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So this is before the New Testament is written. What does Jesus do? Can you imagine that walk on the road to Emmaus where Jesus, the greatest Bible scholar of all, takes the Old Testament and explains to these disciples how all of the Old Testament is pointing to him. And Peter is saying here that I was eyewitness to this. I have an authority. My experience was real and I can be trusted. But now... Peter's going to transition from his experience, and he's going to make an incredible point. And that's what verses 19 through 21 are. He goes from his sure experience, as sure as it is, he's saying, I saw it with my own eyes. But there's something even more sure than my experience, and it's the sure word of God. So let's look at verse 19 in a more sure word. Peter says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This is a a beautiful passage. He's saying here that we have this prophetic word more fully confirmed. First, when you see that word prophetic word there, don't think of, don't isolate it to merely just, you know, when we think of the word prophecy, just sometimes in our modern vernacular, we think of like predicting the future, just merely. And so we tend to isolate it down to just portions of the Old Testament that are predicting some aspect of Jesus's life and all the prophetic things about Jesus in the, New, in the Old Testament. When, when Peter uses this phrase here, the prophetic word, he's talking not about the foretelling of some specific future event from the Old Testament view into the New Testament. He's speaking about the foretelling all of the word of God. And what he's basically saying is that there's something even more sure than my eyewitness account of seeing Jesus transfigured in his glory. And it's the Old Testament which we have, which is more fully confirmed. So he's saying, this is the point Peter's making, that the word that we have from God is actually more sure than even the experience I had with my own eyes. That's the point he's making, and it's an incredible point. He's saying that it's not my experience that confirms the word, it's the word that confirms my experience. As one commentator says about this, he says, essentially Peter is saying, if you don't believe me and what I'm telling you about my experience, go to the scriptures. Go to the scriptures. They're even more certain than my memory of my experience seeing Jesus transfigured on the mountain. And he says, pay attention. This is, man, we could... We could settle down on pay attention as a lamp, as to a lamp in a dark, shining in a dark place. This is such an important phrase, such a clear picture for us. 
I think of Psalm 119, verse 105. Your, lamp, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This week when I was um, studying this passage and meditating upon it and just thinking about word pictures in my own mind, that's kind of how I help, it helps me sort of make the word come alive in my own heart. I think about illustrations and, and, and I thought about um, those of you that are uh, under the age of, I don't know, 40 probably won't have any idea what I'm talking about, but I, I, there's a couple shows that were just like hallmarks of my childhood. Bonanza was one of them. Come on now, Bonanza was so good. Haas and Little Joe and all those guys. Another one was this little show that ran for just a few years called Land of the Lost. And this family got like transported, I guess back in time, and they lived in the with all these dinosaurs, and it was called the Land of the Lost, and it was so real to my, you know, seven or eight-year-old mind. I was like freaking out, like, man, those T-Rexes look really real. I've actually seen some of the episodes since then. I'm like, what in the world? That was the goofiest thing. How did I ever believe that? It's kind of like watching Jaws. When I watched Jaws as a kid, I'm like, wow, that looks real. Now you're like, oh, it's a mechanical shark. But, but there were these caves that the family would go into when they were running away from dinosaurs. And the caves were dark and dingy and murky. And you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And although the caves would maybe save you from a T-Rex that was chasing you, in these caves, there were these strange creatures called sleestacks. And they would, they would just kind of come and they would make this weird noise and they would, you know, chase you down. And so you were, I mean, if the dinosaurs didn't get you, then these creepy guys in the cave might get you. But you had to, you had to go in the cave and woe be to the person that went into a cave without a torch. You, you, you don't go into a cave without a torch. Because the torch will let you know if there's one of those creepy monsters around the corner and you can whack them over the head. I think they didn't like the light. This world that we live in is like the caves in the land of the lost. That's the picture here I get in my mind when what Peter is saying, we would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining. He's saying that the word of God is like a torch in a dark cave. You would call yourself crazy if you ventured into a dark cave without a torch. But how many people that call themselves believers venture into, venture into a dark world and an uncertain week without the shining lamp of God's Word? Peter's telling us here, don't do that. And he's saying that this, this Word is like a torch, a lamp, shining in this dark, murky cave until... The day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What is he saying there? That this word is a lamp, this written word is a lamp for our feet in this dark world until we see the word itself, Christ, who is the bright morning star that will rise again and we will have no more need for Second Peter because we will see the word that Second Peter points to face to face on that day. And so this, this word, friends, get into the biblical picture. Get into the world of the Bible and how the Bible describes itself. It's not cute little phrases to help us negotiate life better. It is our lifeline with which we cannot see. And it's taking us somewhere. It's taking us to that point where the Word Himself, Jesus, rises and the day dawns. And this morning star picture, Jesus, in fact, calls Himself the morning star. Revelation 22, verse 16, He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. So Jesus is giving us a word picture that He's the one that's going to rise on the, the, the dust. He's going to rise on the horizon and shine forth in the brightness of the new day when we will be with... This is speaking about the second coming of Jesus. That's what verse 19. Hold on to the word of God 
Let it be the torch that lamps your way until Jesus comes back and you see him face to face. And then we'll finish in verses 20 and 21, and then I'll end with a few considerations, ways we can apply this text. He says, knowing first of all, this is, this is, we're going to get into this a little bit more next week, but he gives us a picture, a little bit of a window into how the Bible comes to us. He says, knowing first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, so again, expand that phrase. Don't just think of specific prophetic promises like predictions of the future, but think about no jot and tittle, no verse of the Old Testament. And really now we can also apply this to the New Testament, and we'll talk about that again next week. No prophecy of Scripture comes to us from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So he tells us, where does the Bible come from? And he gives us a few negatives. He said, not from someone's own interpretation. What does he mean by that? He means that God, in his giving of the Bible to the Bible writers, over 40 people, 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 in the New, that God was utterly clear. We'll talk a little bit next week about how we know and can trust that the books that we have in our Bible are the books that God intended to be in there. But what Peter is saying here is that God was utterly clear. He didn't leave it up for speculation for Moses or, or, or David or Peter or Luke or Paul to think, well, what's God saying here? God was utterly clear. It's not dependent on a man's interpretation. It's not. He goes deeper. He says it's not produced by the will of man, but from the Holy Spirit. And men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this is one of those verses that gives us one of the deeper pictures into how we even get this Bible. It doesn't tell us everything that we may want to know, but it tells us all that we do need to know about how the Bible comes to us. And what Peter is saying here, and this is this word where he says men were carried along, it's a, it's a, a sailing term. It has the, 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 the picture of sails being lifted so that the wind would catch the sails and drive the ship along. And that's what he's saying. Men lifted up their intellect, their situations, their personalities. God ordained these men. He, he chose Moses and he chose these men, Luke and Paul and Peter and James and John. He chose them. They were the sails that were lifted up and the Holy Spirit somehow in a mysterious way that we cannot fully explain came into their situations, came into their personalities, did not overtake them to where they became robots, but carried them along in their situation, through the intricacies of their personalities, God made them, and he took that sail along, and he produced exactly what he wanted them to produce, and it became the word of God. And I just find great encouragement in this. I mean, obviously, we're talking about the one-time act of bringing Scripture to about, which is glorious and incredible to think about. But just notice the incarnational way that God works. He works through men like Peter, who is, you know, brash. He's running into, the, he's cutting off a guy's ear in the garden. Can you, I mean, that's, 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 a, that's type A right there. But he's also working through people that are more timid. He's working through through men like Timothy, he's working, he's working through men like Paul, who are very intellectual. He's working through David, who's this, this complicated sinner in the Old Testament. He's working through Moses, who was this man who, who, was, who was really scared to speak. God is using all kinds of people, and he, he uses all kinds of people like us to do his will. So, so one thing I want to say is that God made you specifically the way he made you with your personality and your experiences for some glorious divine purpose so that he could blow the wind of his spirit through you, not to bring about something as redemptively important as scripture, but to be a 
picture of the living word as you live out your life. And so think about the tapestry of all of your experiences, just like all of these broken men that were used mightily by God and rejoice in the sovereignty of God in your life. And let's stop trying to be like everybody else. Be the most redeemed, sanctified, yielded, humble version of yourself and let the wind of the Spirit blow through you. And that's what we see here in this description that Peter gives us about how Scripture was brought about, which we'll get into more next week. Just one little postscript before we apply this text and land this plane. Peter's giving us a, an explanation, one of the most thorough, maybe the most thorough explanation, again, not exhaustive, but sufficient, of how the Bible comes to us. But I think we need to be careful, and we're going to get into next week a little bit about some of the evidences, why we can trust the Bible, and what are the implications for that, in things like manuscript evidence and all the such. But let's be careful to not make our doctrine of the word merely empirical, like it's a science equation or a math equation, that if we can just explain to people that two plus two equals four, so therefore, you know, th this, th there. That's not the way the Christian life works. That's not the way the Bible argues for its own authority. This doctrine to believe in the more sure word, to believe that God, through his Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, inspired people through the centuries to write down exactly what God intended to write, to believe that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We can talk about all sorts of archaeological proofs. We can talk about manuscript evidence as, far, as long as the day is long. But none of that will ultimately convince a person apart from the sovereign work of God to give a person eyes to believe and faith to believe that this is God's word. And the Bible tells us that. Listen to second, first, first Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Paul says, The natural person, meaning the unbelieving person, the person whose mind has not been made new, they're not saved, they don't have a new heart, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So a dead heart cannot work itself in, by virtue of intellect, a proper understanding of who God is and what the Bible is. Now this is not, hear me on this, this is not to say that we should not study good arguments and plausible arguments and the whole, the whole discipline of, uh, of apologetics because God does use the evangelistic tool of good arguments and apologetics for the Bible as means by which he brings new life to a dead heart. But the thing that gives life is not the expertise or the academic credentials of somebody explaining it to a dead heart. That may be like the the, the nurse, that may be like the, 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 the midwife, but it is merely there to be used by the Spirit who alone gives life. There's lots of implications for this. If you're witnessing to an unsaved friend or family member, and by the way, this is an aside right now, but I think it warrants mentioning, do not be discouraged if you come up with the best evangelistic, apologetic reasons why they should believe who Jesus is according to the Bible, don't be discouraged. Don't beat yourself up. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no value at all. Yes, study your Bible. Yes, understand good arguments. Yes, listen to faithful apologists who believe the Bible. But know that the wind blows where it wills, and even the smartest, even the best Bible scholar is completely dependent 
on the breath of God to bring the life of God to a dead heart. Even the best preacher, man. I mean, Spurgeon, he was saved by this dude who'd never preached before. He wanders in in the middle of a snowstorm when he was a teenager to this little chapel and this guy who wasn't even supposed to preach who couldn't preach his way out of a wet paper sack with a head start just gets up and reads the Bible, and even though he had no skill, God used that man to bring life to one of the greatest preachers in the history of the church. The, the point, do, you get, do you get my point? Uh, can I move on now? All right. Well, I enjoyed that. I don't know if you did. So it takes faith, and faith is a miracle. Four truths quickly to apply from this text. One, friends, we need to know this. God's word has divine authority and can be trusted over and against false gospels, over and against preachers that preach a message that's kind of right but not really, over and against a confusing world, over and against principalities and powers that want to drag us away and discourage us over and against a whole mountain of evidence that seems, to, seems like God is not in control, we must fasten ourselves to the Word of God that reminds us that God is in control. He knows the end from the beginning. Jesus is coming back. That's really the central message of Second Peter. And we can hold on and lean forward in that day. God's Word is authoritative and it can be trusted. Secondly, God's people should pay attention to God's Word. I mean, what, is it, what does it profit us if we have a good doctrine of God's Word, but we don't have a good practice of actually reading God's Word? Then we become, we're prone to become, like those whitewashed tombs that Jesus says. We're like the Pharisees who know the law, but they, it, hasn't really, it hasn't really done anything in their hearts. So we should pay attention to God's Word. Your view of God's Word, your doctrine of God's Word, isn't really important if you're not holding the torch in the dark cave. Now, God's Word is not just help. It's not just little cards you stick in a box that you can put on your refrigerator. I'm not dogging you if you have that. I think that's cute. That's fine. But Americans... We love little trinkets. We love to adorn ourselves with trinkets. And that's cute for maybe interior design, but we need to press past that. We need to not just put the Word of God on wall art. We need to adorn our hearts. And that's Peter's point here. I'm not, I'm not beating you up. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. I mean, I'm just preaching the text. And I'm, and I'm asking the Holy Spirit to, to encourage us. And, and we're going to talk next week about ways where we can do this better. One way, one way, I think one way, just a little aside here, is I think American Christianity is way too individualized. I think one application from this that we'll talk about next week, Lord willing, is that Christians should read the Bible in groups more often. You know, for many, many centuries in the history of the church, most Christians that lived on the earth were illiterate and they couldn't read. So how did they take in God's word? They got together with somebody that could read it to them, and they, dis they read it, they heard it, they listened to it in groups. Now, I think all of you can read, most of you, except for the very little ones. But I think we should gather together, and that's one thing. I think one of the reasons why I want to gather together more often with you. Thirdly, and I think this is a big part of this text, God's word is more reliable than our experiences. That's, this is, and I'm not just talking about our experiences. Peter's saying that about his apostolic eyewitness of the transfiguration. I'm not just talking about my subjective mood. I think we would all agree that, you know, I get up on Tuesday and I'm feeling pretty bad. And I think the sky is falling. I'm like chicken little. Ah, oh, this is terrible. This is terrible. Oh. And you might look at me and you might grab me by the ears and say, Brad, you know that's not true. Your mood is, 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 is dragging you right now down. That's not true. 
Don't, don't be a slave to your subjective feelings. Trust the objective word of God. And I would say, yeah, yeah, you're right. Slap me around a little bit. Be like Mick in the corner with Rocky and send me back out there for round number two. But Peter's saying that his experience of the witnessing of the transfiguration of Jesus, that the word of God is actually more sure than that. So if it's true for Peter's experience, how much more should I consider it for mine? We live in an age of subjectivity where the highest authority is how we feel. And by the way, if you're a young preacher, if you're a young preacher, don't ever say, try not to say in your sermon, I feel like this is what God is saying. Or I feel like, let's stop talking about how we feel. Let's start talking about what God says. Not to say that our feelings are unimportant. They're really important. But we must strive to subordinate our feelings to the Word of God. And I think that's Peter's point here. Because the arguments of false teachers and gospels that are just off due north a little bit will sound very plausible. They don't jump out from a rock and say, Hi, I'm a false teacher. I'm here to confuse you and really mess up your life spiritually. Want to come along? Want some candy? Come on, kid. No. That's not how false teaching works. False teaching almost always depends on the subjectivity of our feelings. And Peter's saying that there's something more reliable than our experiences, and it's the Word of God. And oh, how we need each other for this, because I, generally when I'm up here, I'm in a pretty good mood. I know that I got a little grumpy last week. But, um, and anybody whose last name is Evangelista right now, I'm just asking you ahead of time not to shout amen too loudly. I can be a little moody. No, I can't. Thank you, Mark McGraw. I can. And I am still sometimes amazed and discouraged by the dominance of my mood over my life. And I, anybody else? All right, I just wonder if this was, if I was the only one here. And Peter's saying there's something more strong, more reliable than even his sure and certain experience of seeing Jesus. And finally, God's word is ultimately about redemption in Christ. It's ultimately about redemption in Christ. We need to read the Bible through a Christ-centered, a gospel-centered lens. So even this transfiguration, Moses and Elijah are there, and Moses and Elijah are these Old Testament figures, and what are they there for? They're there to point towards Christ. And so the Old Testament is like this big collection of promises made, pointing us to the cross, and the gospels are explaining Jesus' life, and then the rest of the New Testament, except for Revelation, is pointing us back and interpreting the cross for us, and the very last book of the Bible is pointing us forward to when Jesus is coming back again. And all of it, the beginning and the end, is pointing towards the work of the Father in the Son on the cross as brought to life in the hearts of God's people by God the Spirit. And what is that message? It's that we have a holy God that we've been created by and we are all sinful people. We have all disobeyed God and the only hope for us Standing before that holy God one day in judgment is the sacrifice, the redemption, the substitutionary work of Jesus on the cross, who on the cross bore the wrath of God. And he could bear it all, and he could remove it, and he could drink our judgment dry because he's not just a good man. He is the eternally, infinitely holy Son of God himself. 
and he satisfies all of God's wrath for all of God's people and he rises again in victory over death, sin, and the grave and he now calls you and I to repent and believe and trust and when he calls us, he calls us effectively, he gives his people a new heart because Jesus said that all that the Father gives me will come to me and now if you believe that message, you despite the circumstances, despite the cloudiness and darkness of this world, can hold on to the fact that the most important thing is that you will stand before God someday. You may come bruised and sore and sick, but you will stand before God someday, and you, all of your sin, will be is taken away by Jesus, and all of his righteousness is given to you, and you will enter when that morning star comes, and you will be with him forever. And if you don't believe that, this whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is pointing you towards that, that you will stand before God someday, and your only hope is the God-man, Christ Jesus, who alone can reconcile you to God. And you must believe that. And I could come up with the best, best arguments for it, but you are completely dependent on God to take out your dead heart and to give you a new one. And if right now your heart is stirring, I I think that's evidence that God is, right now you're in the OR of the Holy Spirit and he's performing heart surgery on you. Your chest cavity is open, spiritually speaking. He's taking out your dead heart and he's giving you a new one so that you can believe. What do you need to do? Believe, turn from trusting in yourself, turn from your doubts and trust in what God has done in his son Jesus, God the son on the cross in his death his resurrection, his ascension, and the Holy Spirit that right now is making you alive and breathe in the breath of faith and say, Jesus, I trust you. I trust you. I'm a sinner. God is holy, and you are my only hope. Do that right now, dear one. That's the point of the Bible. That's the point of Second Peter. That's the point of the universe, that God would be glorified in saving you. Let's pray. Lord, help us with this text. We're frail people. We're doubting people. We're easily confused. We are an emotional generation. Stabilize us by the more sure word. May it be like a torch in a dark cave, a lamp shining in a dark place for all of your people in this room. And for my friends who don't know Jesus, who came in not knowing you, Lord, Lord, they need you to overcome their blindness and to shine the light of the glory of Christ so that they can see and believe. Lord, do that now for my friends that don't know you. Do it all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.